0: And drive time. Justin Cuthbert, four Forfar. It's our last one in the afternoon for a little bit.
1: It is our last one in the afternoon for a little bit. Back to mornings next week. It's going to be a rude awakening, I tell you that. We promise not to complain <laughs> as much as Sam McKee.
0: I don't think it's possible to complain as much as Sam McKee. Like, he set the standard and it's untouchable. He's like, Harmon.
1: At the U.S. Open. At the Open Championship, yeah. He's the Brian Brian Harmon of complaining. That's pretty good. That that is very, very good. Uh, Actually, I think it's our comfort zone, though. I think we're going to like maybe just. Clutching our blankets tighter, going to bed Sunday night. We're going to be kind of happy to be back in the morning just a little bit. I miss
0: our listeners in the morning. Miss the
1: listeners, miss the process just a little bit. It would be nice to get back on mornings.
0: And uh, we're getting back on mornings in a a specific spot, uh, including getting to the Jays Care Golf Tournament uh, for 5 a.m. on Monday morning in Milton. Mm -hmm. And then hosting a four-hour show to kick things off. And then the Blue Jays are on the road. On the West Coast, starting their games at 10 Mm p.m. So that's welcome back to the grind, folks.
1: Yeah, of course, that will begin uh, tonight. Uh, But yes, I'm such a dummy because I was looking ahead at the schedule. I'm like, wow, we missed the Dodgers series. We don't have to get up for the Dodgers series. No, we do have to get up for the Dodgers series. So that'll be interesting. I I thought we got through it. But uh, yeah, getting thrown back into the fire for sure.
0: It'll be good, though. You know, just love the rest of your day every day. So that's good. i can work on recovering my broken back, which I'm currently doing.
1: Uh, did you? Did we update the listeners on that? No. Were you? Were you honest about your broken back I on
0: Wednesday? Screwed my back up, and I'm hobbling around like my 99 year old Baba. Mm. Rest her soul. That's how I'm moving right now.
1: Yeah, it's not. Uh, it's not a pretty sight here. Yeah, you're moving around. You're, you're making better. it. You're making it happen. I'm you got a, a, up a lot of it. lumbar support happening <laughs> at the like moment. You've got row backs. to set on deck. You're, you're going to be able to get through just got to make sure it's good for uh, Monday morning because that will be a rude wake-up call if the back is involved The
0: worst part about throwing my back out two days ago was we were supposed to golf all day yesterday. We had a beautiful tee time set up. It was a nice day, too. It was going to be a perfect golf day, and I had to blow it for the squad. I had to cancel and say I can't do it. And then I was supposed to also golf all day tomorrow, and I was also supposed to golf all day Sunday. So three tee times in four days ruined because of my back after – my birthday was a week ago. It's bad signs. Like you're going downhill quick.
1: Yeah, and like it's not connected to the afternoons, but the afternoons kind of help in that in that sense. Free up a little time. You get to go. I was you hitting get, the gym you, too hard. Yeah, you get out there, and that, I guess that was the problem. You just got a little bit uh, too excited. I need at to the get gym. back to
0: being a slug. But when you're Monday when morning. you're in the mornings,
1: it's harder to golf. So yeah. you had it like kind of carved out at the end of your schedule on afternoons, and the back got in the way of things. I <sighs> know.
0: Anyway, I've never had a back injury, so it's. It's weighing on me, you know, it's sad. Anywho, okay, we got lots to go through today uh, to wrap up our week, our Friday afternoon. Uh, we had Canada's debut at the Women's FIFA World Cup. We've got some Leafs news. We've got some Blue Jays news. We've got the Open Championship. whoo let's start uh, Let's start with the Women's World Cup, though, because that was the last night's game. Uh, Canada opened up their tournament against Nigeria to an 0-0 draw. Mm-hmm. And I think that we had all kind of penciled in this being an opportunity to get three points to to beat Nigeria. They're in a, a, people are saying, the group of death, um, Australia and um, Ireland. Ireland. Wow, I almost said, (laughs) I don't even know. I'm Irish. I was trying to think. What am I? Irish. Uh, Those those two squads uh, to come. Yeah, it's starting to kick in. Um, But I think it. I think we could say it was a little bit of a disappointing result. I think they left points on the table, and they believe so themselves in post-game reports. And uh, I, there was an opportunity to win the game, and Christine Sinclair didn't deliver us, not on her, but that was the moment that we were going to be talking about and looking back on when yesterday's uh, game ages.
1: Yeah, I mean, it did miss miss something uh, or mean something, obviously. Uh, it's not like the tournament's over. It's not like no. they wasted the game where they needed points and they're pooch now because they didn't get points or they didn't get three points against the lesser of the lights in the group. They still have every opportunity to advance in the group. But you're right. You kind of did see it on their faces afterwards. There was some serious disappointment. I'm not sure if that's just totally connected with the result or, you know, it was just emotional for other reasons after the game, but they looked like they were pretty, pretty disappointed. And as they should be, I guess, because they were the better team. They were the team that was favored coming in and they didn't get the result that you need in a short tournament. I mean, you can't, you only get so many opportunities. So if you squander one, uh, it definitely affects the rest of the tournament, but all is not lost. They obviously have chances to win and advance in their next two games in the group stage. But like, this is kind of my, uh, not that I have like theories on this team. Yeah, w- whoa, uh, easy there. But I just think Canada, especially the women's team, especially at major events. And unfortunately, that's when we see them most at mm-hmm. major events only because it's, it's a little difficult to find them sometimes. Although when they're playing, it is definitely worth worth watching. But I think they play both up and down to their opponents. I think they play up to their opponents 100% because they are never out of games. They are never out of games when they are going up against top competition. But I also feel like they have a difficult time separating themselves from teams they should beat. And that's exactly what happened yesterday versus Nigeria, where, yeah, they were better. They had a little bit more of the ball. It was not a perfect performance. But they struggled to break through because they maybe don't have enough talent to break through teams that are trying to defend first. So I think that's been historically a problem with this Canadian women's national team. And the good part of that equation, however, though, is against good teams like Australia, good teams like Ireland, they play up to their competition. And if it's a coin flip in every game, well, they're still going to have a chance to go through and certainly need a result from one of these two games that they have in the group stage, but uh, I'm confident they, they can play in those games and definitely be competitive and have a chance to win those games.
0: Yeah, Jesse Fleming being a, a big reason why I think Canada fell short yesterday, um, held out of the starting lineup for their opener with an injury, not fully sure the report on if she's able to play moving forward. There was a really great moment. Um, Christine Sinclair gets an opportunity to score in her sixth World Cup Mm-hmm. To get a goal in six World Cups, which is would be record setting, she obviously gets the penalty kick, doesn't go in. I feel I feel like it's easy to say she holds a lot of pressure and a lot of the face of Canada soccer, men and women, goes through Christine Sinclair. So that moment, not being able to capitalize on that opportunity, you end up with a draw. Like that's going to weigh heavily. Maybe that's part of the emotion we saw post game. She she didn't speak to the media. Um, but that's one that's going to sting. I mean, you say they got two more games left. They play next week. I have some time here. They play Ireland on the 26th, so that's a Wednesday. That's at 8 a.m., so that'd be nice, a little daytime viewing. But, yeah, that's that's a moment that is going to hurt, and you're going to have to find a way to move through it and have that be, you know... uh, kick in the ass.
1: Yeah, I guess my worry with this team is like it it does feel like it's still built around uh, a legend who is now 40 years old and it's good that Sinclair had the moment. Sinclair Mm -hmm. had the best chance from the run of play uh, I guess about 20 minutes into the first half where she had an open chance and just sailed it high and wide Um, and she also had the penalty of course so it seems like things still revolve around her and maybe that's sort of the problem when you have everything still despite years of, excuse me, Sinclair effect where you have all this talent coming up that is inspired partly by Sinclair. It's still kind of running through her. And you mentioned Jesse Fleming. Mm -hmm. That's part of it though, because I think Jesse Fleming's absence changed the tactics, maybe pushed Adriana Leon into a striker's role, maybe took the ball out of, or or put the ball in Sinclair's hands for the penalty because we know Mm -hmm. Jesse Fleming takes penalties. So that absence loomed large, but I still think the number one worry for me is that you're looking at a team and you're looking at a 40-year-old star who might be in her last chance or last spin here at a World Cup, and it still seemed like if she didn't take her chances, the 40-year-old, that they weren't going to win the game, and that's exactly what happened.
0: Uh, We'll speak to Cara Lang, Canadian, uh, former Canadian national soccer team player, to wrap up our show around 4.30, so we'll get some more thoughts from someone that's been to two World Cups, um, had the honor of representing her country, Knows Christine Sinclair quite well as they've played in those World Cups together, um, also against each other collegially and, and within the the Team Canada program. So we'll get a little thoughts on that from Cara Lang to wrap up the show. Uh, we've got Tim Kirchner on at 4 o'clock. Uh, huge week. Next 10 days in baseball are massive, of course. The trade deadline right around the corner is kind of the witching hour. What's next? Which teams are holding on hope this weekend? A lot of series are going to mean... Massive impacts uh, for the AL East and across the league. Obviously, what's going on with Shohei and the Angels is a is a big conversation point. Maybe the story going into the deadline. And, of course, where the Blue Jays might be looking to add, they did sign uh, Genesis Cabrera. What's the genesis behind that signing, as Justin said to trade, me? Trade, trade. Yep, sorry. Trade. Yes, say trade, trade for him. Um, but they did make a move today. they still a little bit... Time out too uh,
1: anxious to use that pun
0: a little low leverage like a low this isn't an impactful signing, but it is a it's a move nonetheless, so we're gonna talk about that
1: well i, I mean it's I'm not gonna you know d- just just uh throw it under. No, no. I... The bus too soon. Like, I, I, I'm i I'm someone who believes in... So you're a big Genesis Cabrera No, no, I'm, guy. Just, I'm just someone who believes in, like, coaching, <laughs> right? Like, Pete Walker's had a really positive influence okay. on gonna, pitchers he's before. He's going to need one for and Genesis. And if you got a guy who, of course, we, we're looking at the baseball savant page, <laughs> the barrel give, rate, yeah, give the two percentile, the Genesis. second percentile in barrel rate. So people are hitting the fastball. But guess what? The fastball is got some velocity. And if you've got some raw skill, you've had some raw talent, maybe you just need someone massaging it in the right way. So mm-hmm. while I think this is, it is what it is, low stakes, probably uh, no risk at all uh, whatsoever. Mm-hmm. It's just a body who you can kind of have on a tryout basis until you have to make the actual final decisions. And if Pete Walker is the Pete Walker that we've extolled for so long in this in this uh city maybe he can have a positive effect on this guy and all of a sudden you have a lower leverage lefty who you might trust who actually has some heat with his fastball like i'm it's it's probably not much of a thing but i think it's worth just seeing if you can get something out of someone who Pitches and throws yeah, the ball like a close free, to 100 miles per hour. It's basically
0: a free move. You, it's exactly what it is. You trade Sammy Hernandez, a low-level catching prospect, who I think I've never said his name out loud on the radio. Because no. Because he wasn't on the radio. probably won't again. And uh, this Genesis Car- Cabrera dude was recently DFA'd by the Cardinals um, after some failed seasons. But you're a big Pete Walker stand. You can fix Genesis Cabrera. Bring it on. Uh, clearly does not impact what the Blue Jays really do need to do at the trade deadline, just something that happened right before we went on the air, so we thought we'd throw that in there. Um, But there are some significant Maple Leafs news, so we we should get to that. Um, I think it was two days ago we announced, uh, we saw the the numbers between Ilya Samsonov and the club um, going into arbitration. Obviously, they're about like 2 million apart, uh, which is, you know, kind of how arbitration works in terms of setting your numbers, but they will actually be going to arbitration. Now you saw the numbers and this isn't as common as it might seem.
1: That they're going to arbitration. No, I mean, we were looking at, uh, looking at the past few years of arbitration cases. And I would say roughly estimate 95 plus percent of those get settled before Mm -hmm. you actually go into the meeting where you tell each other how much you're not worth that and how much I am worth this. And you fight over the actual abilities of a player that means a lot to your organization. So, Ideally, you don't get to this point, but... If you're playing the hardball game, if you are making it so that you're not going to roll over, which maybe seems to be a thing that Brad Trilliving is trying to uh establish in his first seven weeks as general manager of this team, is that he's not going to give an inch. And I think that's a great thing. However, uh, it does mean that Ilya Samsonov will be a if they do go with the awarded settlement, it means he will be uh he will only be on a one year deal. Mm-hmm. You will have no cost certainty moving forward there, and you will be running out a tandem that is kind of price. For you, yes, you have Joseph Wall at just under eight hundred thousand dollars, but you're allowing someone to set the price. Now, I don't think Brad living does this unless he's confident that the team ask is going to mm-hmm. be more favorable for the arbiter than the player ask.
0: But there's still the risk that the but arbiter still a could risk. give Samsonov the amount that Samsonov wants, and then what? You have an overpriced. Then you're, then you're paying more. Goaltender. It might not
1: be overpriced, but you're paying right. more than you wish you would for one year. And, but I'm I'm kind of thinking the one-year thing is, is really important here. Because maybe if they do settle, maybe they're not going to settle on one year. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's not what Ilya Samsonov wanted, at least if they're going to negotiate. He wants a little bit more certainty himself. I'm not really sure. I can't put myself in his position. But maybe just saying, hey, we've got some leverage here. We only really want one year anyway. Maybe this is the excuse to just be like, okay, if we pay a little bit extra, then maybe we think then it's okay because we don't have to box ourselves in in 2024, 25 and beyond. I think that might be part of it because let's be honest. I don't think Elias Samsonov has proven himself to be, you know, an established asset yet. Like, I don't know how, if you're the Leafs, especially Bradshaw living, you can be like, I know exactly what this player mm-hmm. is. And I want to invest multiple years in him. I think there's a reason why he would be a little reluctant in that space and to just kick it down the road and not box yourself into anything long-term, you're going to get a reasonably priced pairing for next year. And then you can reevaluate everything the following year when it gets really complicated, which Tavares on the final year, and you're paying Matthews, and you might be paying Nylander, and things get really hairy. So, And you might have to buy out with Matt Murray. So mm. things get a little bit more complicated, and maybe this helps uncomplicate not only what they have right in front of them, which is a contract negotiation with Samsonov, but the following year where you don't really know who you want to be spending money on.
0: It gives him another opportunity to, like, earn the trust, too, because last year they came in the tandem of Murray and Samsonov, and everybody had massive questions, deservedly so. And one of those ended up being a success story, and one of them didn't. Um, And you probably had predicted that kind of coming in. So Samsonov earned a starter's role, but... Also with the fact that Murray lost the opportunity for a starter's role, right? Joseph Wall, I I think we can all feel confident might be the future or might be like a starting-esque goaltender moving forward. So you're right. If Samsonov and them find a a one-year thing and it doesn't work out, you've already set yourself up for an opportunity to be looking elsewhere at the end of this year. Um, I just hate the arbitration process. I think it's icky. He's your starting goaltender. I'm using air quotes because I think that – you know, Joseph Wolfe could get there maybe by the end of the season, but it's not, like, a comfortable thing to go in there and say, actually, you suck, so we're giving you $2 mm-hmm. million, and you think you're better than you are, but no, this is how much you're worth. Like, I, that's that's, like, the icky part of this negotiation process, it just doesn't happen often. So I think that's why we're a little bit surprised that they're going to go through with that. But in the end, it could really benefit the Maple Leafs.
1: Yeah, he'll just be the third player in three plus years to hit arbitration league wide. So it's something that players and teams are trying to avoid because maybe Mm -hmm. feelings are hurt. Maybe it is in fact icky, uh, but maybe that's not the biggest deal because if you have a one-year deal with someone you're not sure of, that player has to prove themselves Mm -hmm. yet again and maybe that gets the best out of them. And maybe if it goes completely awry you just wash your hands of it and you thank yourself or you thank you know the arbitration process <laughs> that you were able to wriggle yourself out of something that could have been potentially problematic
0: so how long does this process take till we find a solution would it be like maybe monday because i believe it went to arb today
1: uh like a 48 we'll, we'll have to check it but i think it like you won't know for a
0: couple days we probably won't know by the end of the show i don't mm-hmm. think so i think we might know on monday at 6 a.m. That probably makes sense. So tune in to the Fan Morning Show, wherever you get your podcasts. We'll give you the, the settlement We'll break numbers. down
1: the <laughs> Arbiter's ruling.
0: Uh, so that's uh, part one of Maple Leafs News, but uh, some hirings yesterday. Guy Boucher and Mike Van Ryn replace Carberry and Manuel Maholtra.
1: Maybe. Maholtra's still getting paid, yeah. but I don't know if he's going to be behind the bench role, anymore.
0: Like I don't really understand what his role is. <laughs>
1: Uh, it's it's definitely evolved over time. I mean, he definitely <laughs> had a bigger role a couple years ago. I think his role has been diminished. I don't want to. I don't want to be like callous and and, no, no, no. and, and, mean, like, and minimize minimize or trivialize his impact but he was definitely like a, a guy wearing a headset for a bit last year and and relaying information so I, I think he's moving to eye in the sky because they gotta yes, make they got to the make way for Guy Boucher and Mike Van Ryan. and I think the interesting one for sure is Guy Boucher because he's been linked to the Maple Leafs before mm-hmm. he came second I guess in the coaching race in 2015 when Mike Babcock who just got finished earning that eight Uh, the money on that eight-year deal uh, actually got the job way back when. Uh, That means Brendan Shanahan has certainly been uh, fond of Guy Boucher in the past. He comes in, like, I guess... What I know or what I thought I knew about Guy Boucher is he's a defensive specialist, a guy Mm -hmm. who was good in terms of building a structure that would be sound defensively, but apparently he'll be running the power play. He ran some numbers on the power play success he's had second or third to last rather in two plus years in Ottawa or the two years he Mm -hmm. was the head coach of Ottawa, which is not exactly the most promising thing I've ever heard. It seems like his power play tactics have not ever been plus in terms of what we see league-wide so that's a little bit interesting but he's got three different or two different coaching spots worth three years of time with Tampa and Ottawa he's a guy who's been linked to this organization before and I guess they still have some sort of affinity for him because now he's going to be breathing down Sheldon Keefe's neck
0: that's the thing that a lot of people have circled now is Sheldon Keefe doesn't have a contract after this year which we don't know if that's something that you know will be addressed or not but it was certainly a question we had when the season ended do you go in with a lame duck coach well you are now you have two new faces on that bench and one of them seems to be almost like a next in line type feel um i was just confirming that manny mahalter will quote continue his role with face-offs but move to the bench eye in the sky role um and that will be during games so he'll be pre-scouts and face-offs but no longer on the bench and then um Guy boucher has a passion for the power play <laughs> which is why he'll be taking over Spencer Carberry's role. So a lot of shuffling, like a lot of shuffling um, for Sheldon Keefe and who works with him. But I those decisions aren't just made by Sheldon Keefe. Like those are made by management. But it is interesting, like he's standing there now with no contract and two different guys beside him on the bench. And I just wonder, you know, how much foresight is in these decisions or this is just, let's just... Go one year at a time.
1: Yeah, Sheldon Keefe may not have lost his job, but he may have lost his ability to have any say on who will be working with him. Now, mm-hmm. I don't know that for a fact. I don't know if, hey, he's on, fully on board with Mike Van Ryan and Guy Boucher. I don't know if those would be guys that he would be really, really wanting to have beside him and wanting to work with. Uh, but I do feel like Brad Living and Brendan Shanahan made these two hires. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Guy Boucher is interesting because he is, of course, head coaching ready. And yes. Mike Van Ryan's an interesting one because he won a Stanley Cup uh, in an associate role or in a lesser role with uh, the St. Louis Blues in 2019. And he's thought of as a pretty hot coaching prospect himself. Mm-hmm. So guys who not only have a mix of experience and potential, but two guys who are bringing something completely new to the table and maybe thinking unlike Sheldon Keefe, which I don't think is a terrible thing.
0: Well, we did say when we found out that uh, there's a new GM in Bride Tree Living and we found out after time and time went by that he wasn't making a coaching decision. We talked about this on our show that maybe he's keeping that in his in his pocket, right? Mm-hmm. The change of coach mid-season opportunity. Like when they went on that bad, bad, bad West Coast trip around Halloween, it was like the haunted West Coast trip. We thought that Sheldon Keefe was not going to be a member of the Maple Leafs any longer. But they had already used that card and, and previously and it was like, okay, we're not going to push it. So now, Brad Shea Living has maybe a backup, ready to go if that is the way that the season either starts or or trends towards... It's just interesting. It's just interesting. Because I don't know if there was anyone else on that bench last year that would have stepped right in. Like, who would have been the next head coach of the Maple Leafs if they had fired Sheldon Keefe.
1: I guess Spencer Carberry, who's a coach now, could be considered that guy. But I think that that was a bit of a leap, right? The Washington mm-hmm. Capitals are not in the same position that the Toronto Maple Leafs are in right mm. now, where the Maple Leafs, obviously, you had to go, or you at least would want someone with experience because you're taking over a really volatile situation if you're if you're firing Sheldon Keefe in season, while Washington's kind of turning it over a little bit. Of course, they still have Ovi and the, core, or the championship core from a couple years ago, but they have different ambitions than the Leafs have you mentioned like, hey, you're saving that bullet, maybe you're adding a bullet to the chamber because mm. if it doesn't work out with Keith and you go to Boucher, well, have you really hired a head coach? No, you just have an interim guy, Keith in Boucher, who you think might be able to do a job, so maybe he's putting layers of bullets and in there's his no, chamber and where Marley's he, he's got a lot to do was
0: fired as well, like Marley's yeah. cleaned out their coaching stuff, so there's a like a whole different type of vibe in terms of who's next and the like it's not like a graduation process It doesn't feel like anymore where you do Marley's for a bit, like Keith, and then you come on up like. John Gruden is the new
1: head coach of the Marlies. And he's an NHL coaching prospect, too. He's someone that you would be like, okay, uh, maybe we have an option for Guy Boucher or we have competition between Mm -hmm. Guy Boucher and John Gruden if it doesn't work out with Sheldon Keefe. I I think maybe this is a bit of a stretch. Maybe we're hypothesizing a little bit too much. But getting coaching talent into the system, yeah. I think they've accomplished that, right? Like, I think they really John Gruden did, yeah. is a guy people, people have uh, expectations for. Mm-hmm. Guy Boucher is accomplished. Mike Van Ryan is someone who's looked at as a hot prospect. Like, you're adding people to the system that can coach at a high level. And to say that's a bad thing, uh, it would be, I think it would be wrong unless you're Sheldon Keefe, who's like, okay, there's a lot of capable people around me. Maple
0: Leaf's coaching depth might be better than their prospect depth.
1: There you go. It may just be.
0: Sheldon Keefe can't mess around this year because the leash is quite shorter than I thought it had been last year. Um, okay, so... Without that contract extension, sure it that's is. That's it. Um, Blue Jays are back in action as well tonight. 10-10, first pitch in Seattle. Uh, the home of the Toronto Blue Jays on the road. Uh, Seattle Mariners. It'll be Kikuchi on the mound. And we can tee that up later in the show, but do you remember... There's a lot of drama happening right now with the Seattle Mariners fans and their players, not happy about the the team selling uh, Maple Leafs, selling Blue Jays merch. Mm-hmm. So it'll be an interesting uh, interesting series that kicks off tonight. Um, after the Blue Jays got a nice daytime win yesterday, uh, that was much needed to avoid a sweep by the Padres. There's lots of time um, to tee all that up with our guy Tim Kirkjian, who's going to join us at four o'clock. We will have Adam Stanley after the break. The Open Championship has kind of been ruined by yeah, Brian I mean, Harmon. It's de-
1: Brian Harmon definitely threatening it. I mean, it's <laughs> it's an interesting viewing experience or viewing weekend here in Toronto because you've got the late Seattle Mariners uh, time mm-hmm. slot, and then you've got the Open Championship all weekend. Which Just be of course, nocturnal. Yeah, you got to kind of be opposites. And you have the Women's World Cup happening in Australia right now, so everything is completely messed up. You might have to stay up all night, which is not a good thing if you are... Sam McKee, of course, Um, but yeah, Brian Harmon is threatening to ruin the Open Championship (laughs) because he got off to, he put in such a great round earlier this morning that most people missed it, and most people haven't even seen anyone take a shot, at least today, Mm -hmm. where they've been in any reasonable striking distance of a leader who's been long gone off the course Uh, Yeah, he's 10 under Fleetwood, I think, got to six momentarily, went back down to five. So Brian Harmon might have five shot lead going into the weekend at the Open Championship. And we will see some of those shots, of course. And it's on him to hold that lead. But if Brian Harmon, I mean, 10 under could win. So he might have to come back down Mm -hmm. to the field in order for this thing to get even remotely exciting over the weekend, which is not the best thing because it's the last major of the, the PGA Tour season. And we wanted a good finish, if not a finish with a lot of interesting players. And right now, it's just frankly not the best leaderboard.
0: Okay, lots to tee up. Uh I use it appropriately with our golf guests. Uh, Adam Stanley, our Sportsnet golf writer, will join us after the break. It's Fan drive time. Justin Cuthbert and Ailish, a four-fire Sportsnet 590, the fan. Friday fan drive time. Sports F 5.9 of the fan. Justin Cuthbert, Ailish Forfar. The Open is a nice way to kick off your morning. Have a little cup of coffee. Watch Brian Harmon ruin it all yeah, for us. it was us.
1: nice. But Brian <laughs> Harmon showed up.
0: And now it's just... Everyone- cheering against brian harman yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah. it must. we're all united against brian harman but like the entire golf fan it's
0: like stop it
1: landscape hates you right now yeah oh goodness
0: all right let's talk to adam stanley sportsnet golf writer joining us live how's it going adam
2: it's going pretty good and i had to laugh at your brian harman comments because yeah he's gonna be he's got to be the first guy in 40 years to lose a five shot or greater lead after 36 holes to lose a major this week. So can he do it has there hope yet? Like we all want to see that. So (laughs) is it going to happen? We would all love to see that. I think so. The curious thing, obviously about the open championship is that if these guys who are under par, Heading into the weekend. I do not think that they're too far back. The weather is supposed to be coming in uh, pretty badly over tomorrow and then into Sunday. uh, Rainy, windy, kind of the Open Championship weather we're all expecting to see. Uh, And then you got, so kudos to Brian Harmon. He's played amazing golf. You don't have a five-shot lead at a major if you don't. uh, But he has also had the most top tens on the PGA Tour out of anyone in the last five years, but without a victory. So he keeps putting himself kind of in the mix, in the conversation, and then just can't take it across the finish line. Now he has kind of an all time cushion here through 36 holes, um, but there's still 36 holes to go. So I do think that there's some chasers with a little bit more experience and kind of juice behind them, if you will uh, that uh, that may be giving him a run for his money over the next couple of days.
1: Okay. So as you lay out, it shouldn't be so much of a surprise, but I guess it's surprising to see everyone else falter and Brian Harmon to not falter. So how has he built this lead at Royal Liverpool?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think the he's just been so steady, and he's kind of leaned on the things that he has done so well. Not just over the last 12 months or so, kind of the body of work of this PGA Tour season, but you know, over the last five years, he's first uh, on tour in bogey avoidance. He's you know in the top three in kind of making those short uh, tricky putts as well. Uh, he's in the top 10 in in kind of scrambling. So all those little like go to the corners, go to the dirty areas, kind of get a little chippy, do those little things that nobody really thinks about. But then all of a sudden, because he does them so well and has done them so well for the last half decade, you know, that's how he kind of keeps amassing all these top 10 finishes. So, um, yeah, he's not obviously the the longest hitter. Uh, he's pretty small in stature. But what he makes up for kind of in that uh, or, or what he avoids in that he makes up for in, you know, being being a scrambler, being a sand save kind of guy, being a bogey avoidance kind of guy, uh, and just kind of plodding along, if you will, in the Open Championship because of how many just questions there are about the turf and about playing Lynx golf and the, avoiding the bunkers. And if you find yourself in one of those, you know, a guy who has the skill set like Brian Harmon is probably going to play pretty well. And that's exactly what we've seen so far.
0: Well, if Tyrell Hatton can uh, shoot nine on 18, uh, then it can happen to our buddy Brian Harmon too. Yeah. Uh, yes,
2: it could. So yeah, if he absolutely. falls
0: off, is that the only way to make this tournament interesting? Like if, if he just comes back down to earth, is, is that the hope for like us can, all?
1: Can you get to 10, 11 if you're not Brian Harmon?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think like you're going to have to be, you know, let's, let's just take Rory McIlroy for the sake of notable favorites that everyone wants to see win. You know, Rory's going to have to get to, you know, let's call it at least eight to win this championship. And in order to get to at least eight, he's going to have to go, you know, 500, 300, four, he's going to have to go hefty under par over the next two days. And he's kind of, you know, he kind of lost the opportunity to get at least into that three or four mark, uh, and then not have to lean on too much over the weekend. Now, you know, softer conditions, maybe some of this chippy Northern Irish weather that he's used to, um, he could do it. I mean, any, any of these guys could do it. Golf is crazy. Links golf is crazy. The British open, you know, like I said, there's, there's a lot more questions than kind of straightforward answers about the tournament. But um, yeah, someone's going to have to go decently low and Brian Harmon is either going to have to stall or go backwards in order to kind of open the door. But like I said, I, I do not believe that anyone who's under par currently is totally, totally out of it.
1: Okay, so Rory is uh, one under. He's nine shots back. Uh, who else do you think can challenge? Um, Tommy Fleetwood uh, had an opportunity here, I think, to make it a little closer. He will be in the final pairing, I believe, unless someone yeah. comes out of nowhere here uh, to close the day, uh, if not done already. Uh, but he didn't necessarily have a great round. He will have the fan factor, though. I would imagine over the weekend. I mean, if he's in the the final pairing, which he is expected to be here, yep. uh, it seems like it would be a bit of an advantage for old Tommy Fleetwood, mm-hmm. who is going. To be a fan favorite uh, against Brian Harmon, if they are last to go off here, so Fleetwood has that in in his uh, arsenal, I guess. But there's also like a number of guys who just didn't wasn't able to, you know, make anything happen. And Scheffler just a miracle to make the cut just now. Uh, Jordan Spieth had an opportunity, but he faded again today. Like who other than Fleetwood can get there, and how much? Is the the situation going to benefit Fleetwood uh, against Brian Harmon in the final pairing tomorrow?
2: Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And, and I think that the unique thing for Tommy Fleetwood specifically is like, we talked during RBC Canadian open week and you know, the playoff, the Nick Taylor, Tommy Fleetwood playoff, you know, Tommy's like one of the nicest guys in, in professional golf. And yet he was, he was the enemy in, in Canada. You know, we got a hundred percent of the people on site uh, at the RBC Canadian open wanted Nick Taylor to win. Mm -hmm. And, you look at who is all going to be on site following that final pairing tomorrow, unless you're, you know, Mrs. Mrs. Harmon, uh, I don't think that you're going to be cheering for our for our buddy, Brian. You know, I think that there's just going to be so much uh, momentum behind, you know, local lad makes good that, you know, that could, that could be one of those one to two stroke difference makers for someone like Tommy uh, to be able to take advantage of, of the opportunity final group on a weekend uh, at a major, you know, 45 minutes from where he grew up. But I think if I'm Tommy Fleetwood, you know, right now sitting down to dinner in, in the UK, like I'm going to be pretty ticked off that my day went the way that it did. I mean, you're tied for the lead uh, and you made up, no ground uh, in the second round. You've got to be kind of upset that that you didn't you didn't make anything happen, you know, whatsoever. And, and especially when you saw someone go out in the morning and shoot six under, you know, and have that hefty lead. Um, yeah, hopefully Tommy will. It's going to be a fine line for him. Real quick, you know, in the morning tomorrow, he's, or pardon me, in the afternoon tomorrow in the UK, he's going to have to kind of find that line between. I know I need to make a few birdies, but also I don't want to, you know, force anything and then have to, you know, come from behind and and um, you know almost triple over himself in, in the back nine because that's really where all the difficulty lays so um yeah you know the thing about Brian Harmon uh, to put a pin on that guy's got 26 hours from when he finished his round today until mm-hmm. when he'll tee it up tomorrow so mm-hmm. that's a long time to think about a five-shot lead at a major what,
0: what happened to our buddy Crystal Lamprecht uh, Lampy <laughs> what happened <laughs> to Lampy today
2: Just, all right, we got a lot of buddies we got a, our buddy Lampy six foot <laughs> The funniest thing about well, I'm getting, uh, Lampy is that okay, he <laughs> entered 20, 27 questions were asked in his opening round press conference yesterday. The second question was, "Hey man, what's your shoe size?" So he, uh, yeah, so he's a size 13. Oh, just boy. FYI, now we now we know. That's reasonable, um, but yeah. It's, it, for me, you know, following the game for as long as I followed it, I think the unique thing is, you know, why don't we see more, you know, six foot eight, full on athletes playing this game? It's because if you've seen, seen his swing, like there's a lot of body motion that all needs to be timed really, really correctly, really, really often in order for it to be, you know, for it to be good. And Thursday it was really, really good, and today, you know, it just wasn't. And and I think that that's a thing that he'll have to dial uh, dial in as he, you know, becomes a professional golfer like don't get me wrong his college career has been absolutely spectacular he's been well celebrated he's gone you know been a finalist for all the big awards he's really really good but he's gonna have days like thursday and he's gonna have days like today and um we'll just we'll just kind of have to see but yeah he made for a heck of a first round story uh yesterday which can really only happen at major championships like this that are so open that will allow for so many people just to try to go out there and qualify for it
1: uh, hopefully Tom Kim doesn't have many days like today. Uh, not because Ugh. he shot three under, but because he did it on a busted ankle. Apparently, mm-hmm. uh, that's an, an interesting anecdote in this tournament uh, that you could go out there after I think he like tripped in a backyard or outside or something okay, and fell off his patio. Fell off a patio and he's going three under where everybody else is struggling to uh, get anywhere under par. Uh, where yes. does that rank for you in terms <laughs> of stories? Given that you know it's uh, beyond Harmon, it's uh, there's not much going on there at Royal Liverpool. No, that's
2: that's true, and it was uh it was pretty darn impressive i mean i will say tom kim is in season two of full swing he's going to be in the netflix documentary so Uh, a little content play i gotta i gotta purposely
0: rolled it yeah well (laughs) well
2: his team it was like he the quote was my team was like you know suck it up and get out there and in my head you know i I can't help but be like yeah you know someone probably thought this was going to make good tv the netflix Uh,
0: producers greased up the patio
2: they greased up the patio. They also like forced him to get like into the mud at the players. If we remember that, or at Mm. the, at Oak Hill, if we all recall what happened there at at that major. So it's all making um, sense now. To your question specifically though, a heck of a performance, especially because he went uh, four under for the first nine holes and kind of struggled on the way in, you know, probably got to tip your cap to him. Maybe he was just getting tired, getting exhausted, whatever, but uh, went out, uh, went out early um, and, and had a really nice start. And, now he's, you know, I don't want to say he's in the mix, but certainly, you know, another two days of of three under par efforts by him, and um, you know, he'll probably be in the top five by the time we get to Sunday night.
1: Can we uh, blame Full Swing for Justin Thomas's immense struggles of late and most recently at Royal Liverpool?
2: Yeah i um, I don't know. I don't know what to say about JT other than yeah, maybe he got. Uh, blinded blinded by the content or something like that, but he's just played like really, really bad golf. Like there's no kind of other way to put it for a guy of his, uh, for his body of work 15 times, he's won two majors, um, you know, parentally in the, in the top 15 in the world. And now there are so many questions. If he ends up being outside the top 75 on the FedEx cup uh, in the next two weeks, doesn't make the playoffs he's not going to be able to play, you know, kind of that big boy schedule next week. He's probably not going to be or he shouldn't be on the Ryder Cup team. Um and he just like he doesn't know what's wrong. He's just hitting mm-hmm. he's hitting some really good shots and he's hitting some really really bad shots and he's kind of just like that's golf and we're going to try to figure it out and and life will go on, but it is it's almost like jarring that a guy who should be considered a favorite certainly at a at a at an open championship who is so creative you know, played so poorly, uh, did the same at the U.S. Open, you know, missed a cut at the Masters, you know, again, a kind of golf course that he should be doing really well at. So, um, yeah, I mean, I guess the short answer to that is, is that's golf and golf's hard and you kind of go through your ebbs and flows. But, um, you know, he, sh- he has the golf swing and the kind of the mental fortitude and all those things that he shouldn't be going through stretches like this. No chance.
0: Yeah, T- chatting with Adam Stanley, Sportsnet Golf writer. Um, Where are you at with Rory? Because he comes off the Scottish Open win. I think everyone's feeling some good energy around him. Obviously, a, this is an Open and it's a major championship. It's not always his thing to win. Um, but he's one under, and you mentioned it. He could play a couple good rounds here, but he, we have to rely on our guy, Brian uh, Harmon, to kind of blow it a bit. But uh, Rory's performance the first two days here and, and where that's been for you.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that he is, is probably, like, fine with things, but certainly not, you know, over the, over the moon excited. And, and, you know, with reason, like he's coming into this week off of the kind of victory that has been eluded him, eluding him over the last couple of years, I would say, like he shouldn't have made, well, he should have made the two putts that he did make for birdie down the stretch at the Scottish, but he just hasn't, been making those kinds of putts at the, uh, you know, at the majors, He he's kind of had a couple of backdoor top tens, you know, a lot of really nice results that looked really good on Wikipedia in five years, but you know, he just hasn't had the kind of stretch run of golf that he's needed to win a major. And he ended up having that exact kind of stretch run to win the Scottish, you know, last week. And again, Just all the juju is like in his favor this week. He was the last guy to win a major, win the week prior to winning a major, and it was at this particular golf course. It was ten years ago. Um, You know, the British is the kind of thing where, yeah, he gets cheered on at every single tournament, but this is probably the major where he gets kind of the most quote home crowd, hometown support out of them all. So, um, again, not not so much in the mix, but he is certainly not. you know, he's just kind of, he's not right there. I think he's certainly knocking at the door, but given everything that's happened coming into this week and, and where he should have been kind of mentally, he's probably disappointed to be, you know, this this far back at this point.
1: It may be not the best time to boast about how much you love the Open Championship just because this doesn't seem like it's going to be the greatest Open Championship, or at least it's setting up for that at the moment. Uh, but where where do you put that in terms of your most interesting Uh, tournaments of the year of course it's a major it's going to be one of the most interesting tournaments but uh is it one of your favorites personally and is it slotting in the calendar the last major now of the year a little bit problematic is it a little anticlimactic does it work as the season's final major Uh, it feels like uh, i don't know maybe it works best for me as the the third
2: yeah i kind of like now that they've been doing this over the last couple years I, i do i kind of like that that position for it you know as well um It's got so much character, obviously. You know, no other major championship has kind of that 1.30 in the morning, Eastern time, Mm -hmm. tee-off. No other major has the coffee golf, no other major has the unique golf course where the you know the the browner, the better kind of situation. You know, the CEO of the RNA was kinda like, Yeah, the golf course is a little bit too green for my liking, he said on Wednesday, right? Like you don't have that at the other majors, which is kind of a unique thing about it. But I would say like the PGA championship, to be honest, over the last couple of years has slid into kind of being a firm number two for me. You know the results, the the finishes of the PGA the last number of years have been really good. You know the golf courses they've played at, even like the one year that they were supposed to have a stinker golf course, Reeve, You know Brooks was there and Tiger Woods was like so 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 much in the mix kind of late on on sunday so uh, you know the the tournament delivered even though no one was really anticipating a, a great show from that particular golf course so yeah i would say the masters is number one the pga is number two uh and then yeah between the u.s open and the british you know they're kind of sitting there three four and they could go either way for me personally there's no doubt that the opens got got a lot of personality got a lot of character um just like the masters does but um you know for me I, I do think that given the way that the PGA has uh, been played over the last couple of years, the golf courses, I think that like if we took that and installed that as kind of this glory's last shot again, you know, we may be kind of better off with, uh, with all the majors and the, and the structure of the, of the schedule. Um, that's just me. But, but I think over the last couple of years, we've kind of seen the PGA really accelerate as, as kind of a really, really interesting and, and a little bit of a better major than some of the other two.
0: One thing that the Open does have are those awful pot bunkers. Do you think that's the hardest shot in golf, trying to get out of one of those? Like, it, it, the, the photos of the guys at the bunkers taller than them, I don't even know what yeah. I would do. I would just mail it. Like, I'd say, I'm picking up the ball. I'm done. Like, that's got to be the yeah. hardest shot.
2: I, I, like, I would just full on, like, my number one effort would probably be just to, like, hit it backwards. I don't think yeah. I would have any, any real real motivation to try to go up so high and up so fast it it does. Yes. The short answer to your question is yes. Hardest shot in golf for sure. And there's just so many of them. There's not really just Mm -hmm. normal bunkers at, at, uh, at a link's golf course. I mean, there, there are of course, but uh, for the most part, there's these pot bunkers. And if you get in one, you're totally screwed. It's very, very hard.
1: Are you surprised that uh, they bend to the, the request of the players to make it a little easier around those bunkers at Royal Liverpool?
2: Yeah, I am. Like, you think that it's a major, point number one. Mm-hmm. You know, the RNA, the Royal Ancient, who puts the major on, you know, they're kind of the stewards of the rules of golf and of, you know, old Tom Morris was, you know, the first person who was ever kind of a greenskeeper. And, you know, he was a big part of the RNA and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, you know, in their eyes, I would have been under the assumption that a, being in a bunker means it's a penalty, you know, mm-hmm. not a penalty shot, but you have been penalized for finding a bunker. And that's what happened on Thursday. And a guy still three guys still shot five under par by avoiding the bunker. So yeah, it was kind of an odd thing to see that they uh, had relented and told the uh, the greens crew to, to pull the sand. I, I guess what they ended up doing is pull the sand away from the face versus pushing it towards the face. So then the balls wouldn't kind of like trundle, Towards the face, they'd kind of be a little bit easier and end up more in the middle. But, yeah, definitely a surprising take.
1: So I know all the focus is on the Open Championship, but I'm a bit of a degen in terms of golf betting, and I have my <laughs> eye on the Barracuda as well, and I was shocked to see. I didn't understand what was going on with the scoring system. Uh, it's points. <laughs> it's a point system with, like, yeah. you know, you get six for an eagle or whatever, two for a birdie, and what? you get docked for a birdie. Uh, why do they do that with this tournament, and is this something that's going to be implemented you know, as golf goes under this little facelift, right? Like uh, with the with everything that's happened, and they're trying to do some more team activity. Is there going Is this something that they're gonna try in the future? Is this worth trying? Is this completely wacky, and we should never speak of it again? What do you, What's going on with the barracuda?
0: <laughs>
2: yeah, so it's it, what they call it a modified, like a stableford uh system so state they award points for birdies and eagles and take points away for bogeys and double bogeys oh they, they've been doing this for the last like four or five years at this tournament and and the reason why is because it's like in lake tahoe so they play it at altitude so you know if you're gonna hit a ball off the tee if you average it 300 yards up there you're probably gonna average it 320 330 and it's just the kind of setting where low low scores and crazy big shots and you know 400 yard drives are are kind of the norm so it definitely makes it makes sense in this particular setting um you know I just can't really see this being done at any other (laughs) at any other time during the year and it's also you know to your point a you know an alternate field event it's happening the the opposite week to uh to the open to a to a major so hey why don't we try something something fun something different something silly and confuse everyone.
0: The, the guy in first place is off. 30 over. That's like is, my is, regular yeah. score. I'm like I could be in first at this tournament.
2: Yes, yes, exactly. It's like opposite uh, day. <laughs> it is opposite day. That's exactly right. But, oh, god uh,
0: yeah, just something different. Um Adam, I know uh we'll let you go in a second, but I know you're just in PEI. I, I go to PEI every summer for about 2 oh, weeks. We and go. I'm headed there in about a week and a half. So, uh I'm playing there the regulars like Crowbush uh uh wait, uh what else am I playing? Yep. Um I think I'm playing Dundrave too, maybe. Yep, Dundrave. Um Yes, so I usually get those two out. Is there something I should try differently? Like, I've never done, uh, like, the Anna Green Gables course or anything, if that's worth it, or, like, what's, what's your favorite out there?
2: Yeah, Green Gables. I played Green Gables. It's really, really, really good. Um, I went. Uh, I will say Hidden Gem, Little Hidden Gem, uh, Fox Meadow. Okay. It was really good. I played that one on my last day before I flew home because it's, nine, I don't know where you're staying, but it's nine minutes from downtown Charlottetown. And it's, uh, I mean, I think everything is kind of nine minutes (laughs) away from (laughs) everything else on PEI, but, uh, yeah, great vibe, great hang. They have a rooftop or not like a, a balcony that overlooks Mm -hmm. the entire golf course that has actually been co-owned now by a local, uh, craft brewery. They came in and were like, Hey, we want to run your food and beverage at your golf course. So, um, yeah, I thought that was really, really neat. I'd never seen that at any golf course in the country before actually ever. So, um yes play nine holes okay. nine minutes away from downtown hang out at the clubhouse which is actually a craft brew house kind of situation box metal
0: i'm Big in fan. all right and yeah, i
2: speak her language
0: i'm already out. booking it uh <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> last year we had uh, Lori Kane on the show and i like yes. i always like oh yeah i go to pi every summer she's like let me know when we'll golf together and i'm like really nervous but i think i should message her because she said it on the radio right so yes. and i know you golfed with her so should i have message I her
2: you a hundred percent should she's like I, I half joke that she should run for like political office they in would some vote capacity her in, in yes in PEI because <laughs> basically everybody knows her and obviously knew her father who mm. tragically passed away last year and there's just so many like familial connections mm. with Laurie Kane and, and PEI so yeah I played with P I played her p- played with her on PEI at Mill River she's kind of consulting up there as kind of a partial owner partial um, you know course consultant kind of thing and yeah if you send her a note she okay. would love to play golf i'll you. say
0: adam stanley said to yes, go golf with you and then she'll <laughs> say it. yeah she'll have to okay
2: yes yeah, there
1: right. we well, go well I'm thanks have to for share the contact yeah offline, yeah, yeah
0: that's yeah. okay that's okay uh well thanks for the scouting report i'll definitely check those out and let you know how it goes and appreciate you jumping on with us today
2: sounds good no problem thank you both
0: thanks adam adam stanley's a golf rider and uh i'm pulling up good old fox meadow check it I, out I think when I'm there's there.
1: a 100 percent chance you play with Lori Kane. If just, I message her... It's just her. something that you'll make happen. Well, Knowing you, so you'll make lovely. it she was
0: so lovely. We had her on the show last summer around... I think it was around the Canadian Open. We were talking about Brooke. And I was like, hey, you know, I know you live in P.I. And you're a legend. And I'm, I go every summer. She's like, oh, well, definitely have to golf together. And I remember I had to, like, mute my mic for a second. And I was like, oh, my God. Lori Kane's having we could golf together. But then now, if, you, if she doesn't follow you back on Twitter, you can't DM somebody. Mm-hmm. I didn't get the follow back. But she was really lovely. But I can't now send her a DM, I'd have to tweet at her, and I can't do that. Like, can Stanley's publicly...
1: going to float the digits at you. You're yeah. going to make it happen. Or you could just hang out at Mill River,
0: wasn't <laughs> Yeah, Mill River.
1: When he said it's, it's part golf course, part craft no, that brew, one's house, Mano. it was just like, oh, that's... My eyes lit up. You're going to I started there.
0: Googling already, so we're set. Okay, there <laughs> okay. you go. <laughs> All right, we got one final hour of Trip fan planned. drive time. Um, Kim uh, Tim Kirkjian is going to join us, baseball writer and analyst at ESPN. 10 days away from the trade deadline. This is the witching hour. Everything happens and everything matters. Uh, and then Carl Lang will join us to wrap up the show, former Canadian national soccer team player. Let's talk about Canada's debut at the FIFA World Cup last night and what they can improve with two more matches ahead. It's Fan Drive Time with Justin Cuthbert and Ailish Forfar. Sportsnet of The Fan.
1: All right, back on Fan Drive Time. Justin Cuthbert and Ailish far our final day in the afternoon, which means it's our final hour in the afternoon before we go back to the Fan Morning Show on Monday. Excited for that. We'll miss the time slot. A lot of feelings, a lot of emotions. <laughs> a lot of feelings and a lot of emotions over the next 10, 11 days before the trade deadline because the Blue Jays... They're still scrapping and clawing their way to a playoff spot, a disappointing result against the San Diego Padres this week, but a lot of room potentially to improve and to discuss that and more. Let's bring in our next guest, Tim Kirkchen, baseball writer and analyst for ESPN and a legend in baseball circles. Good afternoon, Tim. How are you, fellas? Uh, We are pretty good. We are pretty good. Uh, Okay, so the trade deadline is fast approaching. Uh, These next 10 days, are you expecting fireworks?
3: It's pretty hard to tell right now. Every every trade deadline I find impossible to read because it changes, the story changes every second. But to answer your question, I think there's going to be some activity because there are so many teams that need another pitcher, so many teams that need a reliever and another hitter, and there are so many teams that are still in the pennant race, even teams, that are right around 500. They look at their division and say, we have a chance to win the division. And if you get in the playoffs, you, you have a chance at baseball, unlike basketball and some other sports. You get in and you have great pitching, let's say you can do something in October. So I expect it to be busy, but I'm telling you, fellas, there have been times where I've said, this: it's going to go crazy at the trade deadline and nothing happens. And other times I'm told, gonna be really quiet and then it explodes and it changes hour by hour.
1: Okay, so a little unpredictable, of course, over the next ten days. Uh but the epicenter of everything could be the American League East because everyone could You know, potentially fancy their chances here uh, and have a chance not maybe to win the division, but get into the playoffs and make something happen. So let's go through the American League East and we'll finish off with the Toronto Blue Jays because maybe we'll get you to detail that a little bit more. We'll start at the top now with the Baltimore Orioles. Do you expect them because they surprised some uh, in uh, last year by not, you know, adding to what was an impressive or a building core. This year, though, it seems like the, the tenor could be different. Do you expect Baltimore to be one of the more aggressive teams, try to you know uh, solidify their role or their spot as one of the best teams in baseball and actually push some chips into the middle of the table?
3: Yes, I do. And they didn't just not add last year. They subtracted at the trade deadline. And I expect the opposite this year because now they've got everyone in Baltimore excited about this team as they should be. I think they definitely need a frontline veteran starting pitcher. who's either a one or a two that can anchor that, that rotation for the rest of the regular season, get them into the playoffs and they're getting in the playoffs and then do something in October. And since the Orioles haven't done much in the off season, uh, of any significance, I think they're under pressure to do it. And let's not lose sight of the fact that they have more good young players in their system coming. They have good major league players on their team who aren't even playing every day who are trade chips. So I fully expect them to go out and get a frontline starting pitcher, a you know, Le- Lucas Giolito, uh, Marcus Stroman, somebody like that. That's what they need to anchor that rotation.
0: So they took over Seoul for and first position position in the uh, ALA session with extra innings win over the Rays. So are the Rays faltering? Is that water finding its level? Is that real that maybe they've fallen off and, and this is the real Rays that we've seen, or is this just kind of what we should have expected from the beginning? I mean that that debut to the season was pretty incredible, but is this more of the Rays that we 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 should know? <laughs>
3: No, the Rays are in between being this bad in July, three and thirteen, and starting off the way that they did. They're going to the playoffs, also, but they need to do something at the break, uh, for at the uh, at the trade deadline, also. I, I think they have three quality starting pitchers, but I think they need another one because of all the injuries. But what's really hurt them, especially in July, is they've stopped hitting. They were a tremendous offensive team. The first three months, shocking most of us, including me. And now they've kind of returned to form offensively. So they may need to go get another hitter. And, and I know Eric Neenander, their general manager, has basically said, look, it doesn't matter how many times we make the playoffs, even win in 100 games. We have to win the World Series. And I read that to mean they're going to go do something dramatic because they, like the Orioles, have a bunch of young guys that they could trade, without really truly affecting their major league roster
0: so yankees red sox bottom of the ales before we get to the blue jays i'll ask you about them of course uh what do you think what do you expect them to be doing i know yankees fans are up in arms about how their season has gone um but you know the trade deadline approaching do you even see them trying to be buyers or is there a way that they just accept that maybe this isn't their season
3: well that's a very difficult thing to do when you're the yankees (laughs) Mm -hmm. you play in new york you have a payroll that high And you haven't been to the World Series since 2009. So at this moment, I think they're going to be buyers because I think they have to be. And I think they are going to have to do something dramatic to get this team going again. Because right now, when you compare it to the Blue Jays, the Rays, the Orioles especially, the, the Yankees look older, they look less athletic, they look slow and they're just not even close to the offensive team that they should be when they're totally healthy, and that, of course, includes Aaron Judge in the middle of the order. Plus, their starting pitching, which we thought was going to be so good, has not been after Garrett Cole. So I think they have to do something really big here. However, if they lose nine of the next ten, and they're hopelessly out of it, then maybe they make some moves and trade some people. But I'm wondering exactly how much do they have to trade? They're, you know, they – they have money to spend. I'm just not sure they have a lot of players that others want.
0: Well, they're about to start three games versus the Royals, so that might help them feel better about themselves uh, for the next three days. Uh, talking to Kim uh, Tim Kirkjan, baseball writer and analyst at ESPN. Okay, so Blue Jays time. Uh, we have been uh, debating this for a little while now. We're heading closer to the trade deadline. Um, we've got a chance to listen to Ross Atkins talk about what the Blue Jays might be thinking of adding. Uh, where do you see the Blue Jays looking to bolster their roster as they head into uh, the important part of the season?
3: Yeah. Again, the Blue Jays have to look around and see the other four teams in the division, including the Red Sox. They're not only contenders, but they're going to be aggressive at the deadline. Therefore, I think the Blue Jays have to be also. And it all depends on Hinjin Ryu. When he comes back, how does he throw? Will he give them enough hope in a short amount of time that they don't have to get another starting pitcher? Is Alec Manoa, is he back or was the last start indicative of where he is right now? Because if he's not the pitcher, if he doesn't return somewhere close to last year's form and Ryu isn't what they isn't ready to come back and be a really good pitcher again, then they have to go get a starting pitcher. So I think that's where the focus is going to be is those two guys in the rotation who are trying to find it or coming back. And I think one way or another, the blue Jays are going to have to go get a starting pitcher, but To repeat, like every contender out there is looking for a starting pitcher and there aren't that many of them
1: available. Yeah, the Blue Jays definitely have balls in the air here. They got data they got to collect still in order to put themselves in a position where they know where they're truly buying uh, or truly going out to try to buy. Uh, But we did get some insight into Ross Atkins' mindset uh, a couple days ago when he met with the media. He admitted that an accomplished right-handed bat is something the Blue Jays would be interested in adding before the deadline. When you hear accomplished right-handed bat, does anything come to mind in terms of candidates or potential trade partners?
3: well first off everyone's looking for a hitter because in this day and age with the pitching so good every team is short a hitter except for maybe the Braves the right-handed hitters out there maybe cj crone of of the Rockies one team that we know are going to move some people because they're hopelessly out of it you know but he's a first baseman dh type it seems they have enough of those although he could in theory platoon with with Brandon Belt at first base DH moving around with with Vladdy and everybody else. So maybe he makes some sense in that respect. Um, But after that, I'm not sure for all the teams that are looking for a hitter that there are going to be too many hitters out there. That's part of the problem.
1: A Big picture, Tim, when you look at this Blue Jays team, where they're at in a couple years, where the window might be, what's going on around them, the entire ecosystem, does the situation sort of dictate to you, and you touched on a little bit, that they have to be hyper-aggressive, maybe throwing caution to the wind, because this isn't going to last forever when teams like the Baltimore Orioles are at the position they're at now, maybe ahead of schedule, and the Yankees are always the Yankees, and the Red Sox are always the Red Sox, and the Rays don't seem like a team that's going to fall apart anytime soon, just looking at timelines, trajectories, where everyone's at, does it should that shape what the Blue Jays are thinking here ahead of the trade deadline?
3: Yeah, I think it has to. Now, I personally think the window is still very much open for the Blue Jays to be really good this year and really good next year. Uh, after that, then you start to wonder. But if you have a two-year window like this, I think you have to take advantage of it Now, again, a million years ago, Earl Weaver used to tell me as the manager of the Orioles, he said, when you have a chance to win this year, you win this year, and then you figure out next year, next year. Now, teams don't operate that way like they used to, and they certainly don't operate like Earl Weaver used to, but I think this is the time for the Blue Jays to strike because um, the American League is really good right now, but they're... There's no team in the American League right now that is so good. You say, well, they're going to the World Series. You might be able to say that about the Braves in the National League, but I think the American League is wide open with a lot of good teams, no great, great teams, and this is where the Blue Jays, I believe, have to do something in order to move ahead of a couple teams and give themselves a really good chance in October.
0: This might be the first time in about two weeks that we went 10 minutes into a baseball interview without asking about Shohei Otani and the Angels because it seems to be the biggest storyline going into the deadline. I mean, the season in general, um, the Angels have a massive, massive decision to make. They have some time here, but it is uh, the witching hour. All things matter each series, each game about which direction they will go. Um, I guess the multiple ways I can ask you this question, but where do you think the Angels will go in about 10 days with the way that Shohei Ohtani in the season is is going?
3: Yeah, we're, we're all speculating here. Let's be clear. Mm-hmm. I think they're going to hang on to Shohei Ohtani because I think 10 days from now, they're still going to have a chance to make the playoffs. And if they have any chance to make the playoffs, I think they have to hope that they get hot and make it to October and show Otani, look, we're a playoff team. You played in the playoffs, and we're going to be a playoff team for several more years to come. Whether that's true or not, they at least have to present it that way. I'm not sure they're going to get equal value if they trade him before the trade deadline. And if they trade him, you know, that's it. He's going to be gone. I think if they make the playoffs at least, They have an outside, outside, outside chance of giving him over $500 million and convincing him to stay in Anaheim where he is exceptionally comfortable on the mound and at the plate there, and that's very important to him. But he also really wants to win, so the Angels have to prove to him we're going in the right direction, we're going to win, and the next two months will determine that.
1: The risk assessment really is fascinating from an Angels perspective because, yeah, you're right, they're in the hunt. Yeah, they have Shohei Ohtani. If you have Shohei Ohtani, maybe you could do some damage. Maybe if you're sitting at the table, uh, you have a chance to be the one that reaps the rewards. Uh, But there's so many layers to that risk assessment, and it not going well would be uh, devastating because you'd be squandering one of the greatest assets that baseball has ever seen. So if we're going to do like doomsday worst-case scenario, What is the worst-case scenario in all of this for the Angels?
3: All right. The worst case is they don't trade him. They fall apart down the stretch. He says, I'm never going to win or I'm not going to win here anytime soon. So I'm leaving. I'm going to go to a rival, maybe the Dodgers, of the Angels. And the Angels are going to get a draft choice in return for perhaps the most remarkable, most talented player that's ever played in the major leagues. That is the danger of not trading Otani and hoping the team gets hot and makes the playoffs. But I repeat, that that's the risk I would take if on the Angels, that maybe, maybe we can keep him if we make the playoffs and prove we're going in the right direction.
1: And at the very least, I guess you're housing one of the greatest seasons that baseball has ever seen. I guess if it stays on this trajectory, I guess there's some merit to that. Uh, and, I, you know, yeah, yeah, that's probably the worst thing. I think it would be equally frustrating if you're an Angels fan, if you trade him and you don't get what you think would even be close to value on an asset like that. So, let's talk about what the potential trade package could be. We know what it's going to look like in free agency if he goes to free agency and they're going to be throwing maybe $60 million a season at him. But, like, can you even be begin to think about what the trade package would look like coming back. What might get the angels to actually be interested or have those conversations because the trade market value and the free agent market value are different things here. And of course we know what the, the free agent value is, but the trade market, we still don't know on that front.
3: Right. And that's again, the risk. And that's the tricky part. That's the complicated part. This is going to be the biggest trade in major league history almost no matter what, because he's involved in it. I've had teams tell me it's going to take three guys, it's going to take four guys, it's going to take five or six to make the trade. And yet if you're trading for Otani, even though he could make the difference between a contender and a champion, a non-contender into a contender, you, you can't trade six players for him and rent him for two months because you might not even make the playoffs. It's highly unlikely, but this is the danger there is, how many teams are going to be willing to give up what it's going to take for a two-month rental, meaning the team that trades for him is going to have to have some sort of good idea whether they have a chance to re-sign him after the season. And how are they going to know that until we know how the final two months of the season plays out? That's why this scenario is as fascinating as any I've seen around the trade deadline.
1: Is there any team that makes sense to you on a rental basis? Like, should the Tampa Bay Rays go out and try to get them? Because they know they can add prospects to the system. They know what they have with with their current roster right now. Would it make sense for a team like that to just be like, hey, two months is fine with us?
3: Yes, that that's one team that makes sense. Because as we said earlier, they are now in the mindset that we have to win the World Series. We've never won the World Series. We have to do it. How can we do that? Shohei Otani might be our best chance to win the World Series, and their system is so deep, and they develop players and draft them so well that the six guys they give up might not even be quality Major League players right now, but it might be enough for the Angels to say, all right, this is how we're going to rebuild our team long term. So, yes, that's one team that makes sense, but there aren't too many others.
0: (laughs) Is there a team other than the Angels uh, that's in a really, really tough position these next 10 days where it, that, you know they could go 500 over the next series and still not really know which way the wind should blow? Is there a team that you circle that it's going to be all eyes on them as, as either buyers or sellers?
3: Well, there are so many teams like that. We've talked about the Yankees. Uh, one team that interests me are the Cardinals. The Cardinals do not sell off star players when they've sold 3.2 million tickets for a season. So the thought of trading, you know, Nolan Arenado or, um, you know, Paul Goldschmidt at this point, it seems unlikely that they would do that. And yet, even though they've played exceptionally well the last week, um, maybe the best thing they could do is to kind of start all over here, but it's very difficult for the Cardinals to start all over. And they're looking to build for 2024 and 2025, and they want to build with pitching. Well, the only way they're going to get pitching is to deal their star players. I just don't see that happening. But that's a team to at least keep your eye on, because I'm not sure where they're going. They're still not out of this thing. But if they're really honest with themselves, this is not a playoff team right now, and this is not a team that's going to do much in October. So it's really a tricky spot for St. Louis.
1: Uh, Last one for you, Tim. You mentioned it. It's wide open in the American League. It's not so wide open in the National League with the Atlanta Braves is clearly the class right now of that league. Uh, What do you expect them to do to solidify or try to solidify their spot as the favorites in the National League?
3: Yeah, the Braves are in great shape. They have the best offense in baseball, and I'm not even sure there's a close second. Um, Their starting pitching has been – not so good lately, but it's going to get much better when Max Reed comes back in the end of July and Kyle Wright comes back in the middle of August. And they have plenty of pitching as it is. They need to add a couple bullpen guys because they've had some blow ups out there, as have all teams. So I expect them to add a couple of pieces in the pen, but they don't need to do much more than that because, you know, as of yesterday, they were, well, they're 30 games over 500 and they've got seven or eight more wins than any other team in the national league. They're in really good shape. I would be surprised if they did anything major.
1: Hey Tim, this was fun. Uh, we definitely appreciate the time this afternoon. Enjoy the next 10 days. They should be busy. And if we get that Shohei show trade, I guess we'll be talking about it for the next 10 years. Yes. Thank you fellas. See you. That's Tim Kirchin of ESPN. So a couple of the things tonight. Leo Messi expected to make his debut with Inter-Miami. They're just building, like, a super team, apparently, in Miami.
0: But I saw something really funny about this. Go ahead. Um, apparently, Messi won't play on turf. Like, he said, I won't play on turf. This might, I, It's news to me. I don't know. Other people might not know this.
1: It's pretty ridiculous. Eh? But
0: the commissioner and, like, uh, the ML, I don't do that surface. The commissioner in the league is, like, expecting teams that don't have that do have turf to install grass surfaces for their matches against Messi. So, oh, you want Messi to come play in your stadium and and make (laughs) millions of dollars in revenue for fans? You have to get grass or he won't play. You better buy a lot of fertilizer. That's crazy.
1: It is kind of crazy. Like, I, I get that. But if you want to be messy, like, you if, do you're, if, wants, if you're but. the MLS and and you really like you had your hands in this, right? Like you're giving away Apple money. You're giving away a lot to try to get messy into your league onto inter Miami. You're working real hard to do this. You can't put it on the other teams. You can't put it on Atlanta FC or whatever it is. But there's
0: like five or six teams that have. Yeah, you can't put it. It's not stadiums, their responsibility.
1: Yeah. That's not the rule. The, the, if the rule was to have grass. Then, yeah, you got to put grass in. But the rule right now not to have grass right like that's not a rule you can't be like oh we uh did you hear the news uh Leo Messi now plays in this league uh we're gonna need everyone to change the way they operate we're gonna need you to find a way to actually grow grass because you may not do that right now but you've got to have grass you've got a full field within two weeks or well or else because we're not allowed we're taking away home dates because we're not allowing Messi to not play in these games right
0: I know, I get it. Like he's the goat, or ooh, I don't want to say that, but yeah, you yeah, know, oh yeah, goat, okay. no, say it, stand People by it. All, okay, yeah, whatever. say it louder. He's an incredible, incredible soccer player. But yeah, he can say what he wants and he can decide what he wants. Um, but it is just, it's crazy. It's like it's really quickly going to happen. He's going to come play in your in your, you know, your, your city. Get get grass cooking, get it growing. Um, yeah, so tonight should be his debut off the bench. So that will be spicy stuff in Miami.
1: That will be spicy stuff. Uh, is there anything, we saw the celebrity encounter at Publix with Messi. Yeah. Uh, I know this piqued your interest clearly. I think we talked about it last week. There was another celebrity encounter, however, that got your attention. I saw
0: this one online too, and I also didn't know that A-Rod was like half living in Windsor, Ontario. So he's been dating this fitness model girl, Jacqueline Cordero.
1: I think Cordero.
0: Cordero. There's an I in there. Cordero. 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 Whatever. Let's go with Cordero. And they've been dating for a while. If you go on their Instagram, I didn't know this. I don't follow them. Um, Anyway, there's this viral video of A-Rod just strolling through a Windsor suburb, like a beautiful little street. Mm -hmm. And these two little boys are like, that's A-Rod! And they run up to him and they're high-fiving him and they're just shocked that it's A-Rod. And someone's obviously filming this and it goes viral, whatever, but a-Rod just strolling the streets, the neighborhoods of Windsor, Ontario has to be one of like the most random occurrences of running into a fan or a mm-hmm. celebrity. So I thought, okay, I'm sure there's listeners that have had weird coincidences where you're at the gas station, look over and it's so-and-so pumping gas and you're, what? Like, I, what are the odds? So... I think A-Rod being spotted in Windsor alone is just very strange.
1: I don't know much about Windsor. I don't think I've ever been in, I've been in Windsor, but I don't think it's just passing through, just passing through Windsor. Don't know the streets, don't know the suburbs very well, but that A-Rod was convinced to move to Windsor, even if, even just partially, like this woman must have some pull, right? Because, you you know, A-Rod could live wherever he wants. And she's just like, nah, we're going to stay in Windsor.
0: I don't know if it's full-time. I don't know anything, but they're fully in a relationship, and uh, it looks really lovely, but just A-Rod in Windsor. So if you have something similar, five ninety five ninety. If you live in Windsor, get out there. Look at this video. You'll probably know which neighborhood this is. A-Rod's around.
1: If you're at the Publix equivalent in Windsor, maybe you'll see A-Rod. Maybe he'll be buying sugary cereal. Maybe. Probably not, though, because I think the wife or the new girlfriend is a fitness They're very,
0: very fitness... Yeah. Orientated, so probably
1: um, not fruity pebbles.
0: Post Malone was playing in Toronto for the last little bit. Yeah, and you just told me this, which you never know things about pop culture over me. Well, you're
1: slacking a little bit. You're worried about your back.
0: That Post Malone was wearing a Max Domi jersey on stage. No, not a
1: Max Domi. Oh, a tie Domi. Ty
0: Domi. Twenty eight. Yeah. He came out in a tie Domi jersey on stage.
1: Yeah, I. I mean, that's another thing. It's just like I. I the celebrity encounters you might be, you might have to wait to your one time at Publix or the one time you're just walking around in Windsor, but Ty Domi has celebrity encounters like hourly, right? Yes. Like all he does is hang out with celebrities. Yes. It is one of the most fascinating things to me is that Ty Domi is so in the elite group of celebrities that it, like there's no no one is too big for Ty. Like Domi. Tom
0: Brady might come to Scotiabank Arena on a regular occurrence next year
1: with Mark Wahlberg. And and Post Malone. Who
0: was the other famous guy he had?
1: He had Ric Flair Ric up there. Ric
0: Flair! <laughs> Woo! <laughs> there, there that was go. good.
1: That was pretty good.
0: All right, we got to take a break. All right. We've got Carla Lang joining us, former Canadian national soccer team player. Uh, she's been to the FIFA World Cup multiple times. The excitement was there last night. The Canadians didn't come home with the three points that they had probably wanted and anticipated against Nigeria, but they got two more opportunities. Um, let's chat through their debut and what needs to change moving forward. It's Fan Drive Time with Justin Cuthbert and Ailish at 4 Not Sportsnet to The Fan. All right, fellas, we're back. (laughs) Fort 590, The Fan. It's fan drive time, the final block, Justin. And then we're back in the mornings. Rise and shine, baby, Monday morning. You'll hear us, 6 a.m. Don't forget about us. We'll be waiting to hear you. Um, see you in the text line. Uh, we love the listeners in the morning and in the afternoon, but it's our home in the morning, so we'll be back.
1: We've and, enjoyed the break. And it won't be like home-home, because home, we're going to be at the Jay's Care Foundation Golf Tournament Monday morning, which is going to be a lot of fun. You'll have four hours of us back mm-hmm. in the morning, which will be very exciting. Uh, but then we'll be back to mornings for the rest of the week.
0: And some of the mornings will be during Canada's next Game at the FIFA Women's World Cup they play at 8 a.m. on the 26th on Wednesday against Ireland so we can watch that kind of live while we're on the air um last time we got to see a little late night debut for the Canadians uh nil nil tie against Nigeria uh let's talk to Cara Lang former Canadian national soccer team player joining us how's it going Cara
4: it's going really well we always talk Thank to you your, your
0: better half but i'm like we need you on the show what's <laughs> I, going on here
4: <laughs> i know i've been waiting to get the call i've heard such great things oh about that's guys so sweet so... <laughs> well it's all
0: lies it's all lies um i well, will <laughs> ask you about your your history with the fifa world cup first and obviously we we want to chat about can the canadians currently but you know you've had the opportunity to represent canada at the international stage and in that honor of doing so um it's it's certainly very special um I know it's probably hard to put into words, but what's it just like getting out there at the FIFA World Cup and being able to say, hey, I'm a Canadian and this is our country and this is our tournament and let's go get this?
4: Yeah, I think, um, I mean, the World Cup, obviously, it's it's the biggest stage for any soccer player. It's, it's um, a huge honor to compete in the Olympics, but if you are a soccer player, the World Cup is your ultimate goal. And so I think the first feeling you have is like, that this is the dream come true. This is the pinnacle and that it's really, this is the opportunity. I mean, this, this is the stage where superstars are, are born and it's kind of, you know, everybody feels that this could be my chance to have a breakout performance and to take my team to the top and um, do it when everybody is watching. So, you know, I think for me, back then, 2003 was my first World Cup, and just the idea that it was televised worldwide that kind of blew my mind. Now, for these women, the fact that the game has grown exponentially since then, and it's they're breaking records all over the world for viewership. Um, I think it's you know it's it's set to be the most watched. Um, female Mm -hmm. competition in all sports ever so that is kind of mind-blowing in itself and I'm sure that that's something that every player who's stepping onto the pitch is aware of
0: yeah that accessibility is huge I mean as a hockey player I I felt it I I wanted to see those strides you've now been a part of the start of that and you're watching kind of where the steps have been made what's been the most impressive I guess, um, change in the way women's soccer is viewed or promoted or, um, accepted into the sphere of, of sports worldwide. I know there's still steps to be done and specifically with Canada yeah. soccer, but in your time of while now yeah. watching since retirement, where have you seen the most like excitement or growth?
4: I think the, the most obvious change for me is that we're finally seeing these women plastered on billboards in the commercials you know how many times have we seen a women's world cup where the soccer commercials are still all men's players and that has been so frustrating year after year but this time it's every single commercial is a different player being highlighted and they deserve to be you know i was walking around downtown and christine sinclair's face is on so many different billboards and for me it's just like finally these women should be plastered everywhere it should be the only thing people are talking about Um, I think the fact that we're seeing the jersey sales, how much they've um, increased. I I was reading that Australia's surpassed their men's jersey sales during Qatar and since Qatar in the lead up to the tournament, before it had even started, they'd already surpassed the number of jerseys that had been sold. So that's incredible. You know, we're going to see boys and girls walking around in the streets, going to school, wearing jerseys with female soccer players' names on the back. And for me, that's that's huge.
1: So important change, clearly. But let's go back to a constant, and that's Christine Sinclair. Been a constant since you played mm-hmm. at the World Cup with her, seeing her in her sixth World Cup in 2023. How would you best describe just that feat?
4: Well, I mean, you described it perfectly. It's a feat. I was watching her yesterday in the warm-up thinking to myself, I'm more than three years younger than her and I'm in pain every day (laughs) like just doing the average workout I don't even know how she's getting through those warm-ups let alone playing in matches obviously she's not playing an entire 90 minutes Um, I I don't think anybody's surprised to see that I think if anybody expected her to be doing that it's a little bit unrealistic Um, but just the fact that she's still out there and she's still one of the best players on the field for Canada um, obviously different role She's playing more of a midfield position, dropping into the midfield in the false nine, creating more opportunities rather than finishing. Um, But for me, I I think, you know, there's there's been some questions of whether or not she should be on the pitch. And to me, that's like a no brainer. Whatever she can give you is what you're going to you're going to take if you're Bev Priestman and you have Christine Sinclair on your team.
1: So you touched on a bit, a little bit tactically there. Uh, I'm watching last night, of course, and it's the untrained eye, of course, uh, and I'm seeing Christine Sinclair. Uh, and I wouldn't say be the center of attention, not what everything's revolving around, uh, but she gets the best chance from the run of play. Of course, she steps up and takes the penalty, uh, and unfortunately, mm-hmm. it's a stop. I- I- I'm looking at that thinking, okay, maybe an issue here with Canada is that Christine Sinclair still has to be... Christine Sinclair Uh, you uh, kind of maybe touched on how that might be different, but like, how is it really? Is that somewhat the case? Is that partly the case? Should that be the case? Um, Like from a tactical perspective with Christine Sinclair, uh, how does it affect what they're trying to do and what they should be trying to do?
4: Yeah. So, I mean, it should not be the case at this point in her career. She should not be the one that Canada is relying on to score. And honestly, I, I don't think as a team she is, I think, um, bigger picture, other people's expectations. You know, they hear the name Christine Sinclair and they think she's going to be the one providing the goals, and that's just that's just not the reality. Unfortunately, though, the big question on everybody's mind for Canada is if it's not Christine Sinclair, then who is it? Who's going to score the goals? I still have high hopes for Jordan Jordan Heidema. Last night we didn't see it, but I I do believe that it, there's potential for this to be her breakout tournament. We've been talking about Heidema's potential for so long at this point um that it's to me it's sort of now or never if she's going i mean she'll always be in the squad but it could she be the next major goal scorer the next superstar for canada and if she can manage to um have a big impact offensively provide some joy for canada throughout this group stage i think that that could be it she could she could take on that role um Aside from Haidama, you know, there's, without Janine Becky in the lineup, there, there aren't very many other players who, who could be that for Canada, and that is, has been a problem for Canada in previous tournaments, and it's, it's a problem right now. A lot of people were questioning it leading into this match, and I don't think that this match did anything to dispel those concerns.
1: Yeah, Haidemus night was interesting uh, because uh, I, I think she maybe got a favorable call, at least in terms of the broadcast. She's a part of a lot of it, but uh, not much happened when the ball was finding her. And it, I felt it mm-hmm. kind of conflicting watching her and, and figuring out what sort of impact she should be having and what sort of impact she was actually having. Uh, so something to definitely watch, but also mm-hmm. uh, Jesse Fleming uh, clearly not being uh, included in the team uh, due to injury impacts things. And I wonder if that impacted the starting 11, if it impact tactically, if it impacted the decision uh, with Christine Sinclair to take the penalty kick, everything that uh, the, you know, the domino effect with Jesse Fleming, not being available to bet. Mm-hmm. Priestman. How does that affect Canada? If she's able to come back for the second two games in the group stage.
4: Yeah, I mean, this minor knock that, that they're they're calling it first for Jesse Fleming, honestly, I don't know how serious it is, but this minor knock was a major blow for Canada, um, at least in this first match. I think we saw how disjointed the attack was for Canada. There was no flow, no rhythm, um, and, and it hurt. It hurt. Canada was not able to have any kind of creativity in open play, unfortunately, and then nobody was really making... They weren't creating chances out of nothing. If, if you're in a situation like that where, where you're not able to set up the perfect opportunity, somebody needs to be there to just create a, a something. You know, There were a few opportunities for um, one-time shots from distance at the top of the 18 where I was just dying to see somebody have the guts to just have to believe and just fire one off and test this goalkeeper. Um, Nigeria's goalkeeper only has to make two saves in open play like that not good enough um so as far as Jessie fleming and and the loss that that um she, she the loss of her in canada's lineup you know i think we saw it in the lack of creativity as well as uh, as you mentioned the pk you know um if she were out there she would have been the preferred choice to take that pk and i think the whole game would have been a different story we'd be having a completely mm-hmm. different conversation right now obviously so um it definitely that situation specifically highlighted the loss of of jesse fleming as far as going forward it's hard to say you know i i don't know how much of this is um is tactics within the media and and sort of um trying to minimize how bad her injury is maybe it is is just about managing her injury and, and making sure that she's 100 percent for the next two games or beyond um but we don't know at this point i was surprised to see that she didn't even have cleats on you know so mm-hmm. um as an option to, as a sub that, that was a little telling for me.
0: We're speaking with Carl Lang, former Canadian national soccer team, a player. Um, okay. So we went through some of the areas of improvement uh, that maybe the Canadian team would like to focus on moving forward, but what were some positives that you drew? Because uh, a nil, nil tie, it could have been worse, but it could have been better. Um, so exactly. let's flip it to a positive. Is there something that you hope that they build on and they can contain um, that sort of energy going into Ireland next week?
4: Yes, absolutely. I mean, a huge bright spot for me was Ashley Lawrence. She's arguably the best, it's not just one of the best players on this Canadian team, and I think she will continue to be that for Canada. Um, her attack, especially in the first 30 minutes up the flank, we saw some fantastic flank play from her. Unfortunately, it wasn't turned into anything productive um, in terms of finishing, But I, th- and also it's not necessarily sustainable for her to do that all game long. Um, I think that's why we saw her fade a little bit in the second half because she does need the support. Um, but she's huge for me. I think that if the rest of the team can um, you know support her a little bit more and, and help her to, to finish off the opportunities that, that she's providing for Canada and that just aggressive attack, um, I think that that will be huge. Chloe Lacasse, Lacasse was a huge bright spot for me as well. Um, she had an immediate impact when she was subbed in. And I think we'll definitely see more of her going forward. And then um, Jesse Fleming, obviously, like just everybody is hoping that she's okay and she will make it back. And I think we'll see a very different team if she's out there orchestrating the attack.
1: Uh, what did you make of Jade Riviere's night? It, it felt like, yeah, like uh, it, in terms of the fullback play, Ashley Lawrence definitely stand out. Uh, a lot of the things they did from an offensive standpoint went through her very, very impressive, obviously. But they were talking about conversely how maybe one of the weak spots was Jade Riviere. And I thought she was hanging in there really well. They were trying to go after her. The Nigerians were, and I thought she did a pretty good job.
4: Yeah, I mean, I think for for youth and, and experience, I think she did do a great job. I think that that's, a tough ask on anybody um to step into that role alicia chapman has very big shoes to fill and i think jade revere maybe was worth working through a, a little bit of nerves and and maybe isn't a hundred percent um quite yet but i think that this is a long tournament and i think potentially a long tournament and i think that we will continue to see the youth on this canadian team and a lot of other teams really start to settle in it's it's very much sort of a get the monkey off your back that first game of the world cup um and i think that you know where where we we can expect to see more from jade rivier for sure going forward
1: okay so what's the reality for canada here uh one point from the game from nigeria they've got australia and ireland next australia won the game versus ireland uh so canada in the middle of the pack right now what needs to happen what do they need from those two matches uh to ensure they get through
4: I mean, I've been saying it all along. I think Canada has to finish first in this group. Um, if they want that clear path to the final, because beyond that, I mean, there is so much parity in this tournament once you get outside of the group stages that um, you know, there's it's it's it would be a very difficult road if they didn't finish first. So I think they need two wins, um, two decisive wins here and, and that's um not going to be easy by any means because both ireland and australia are very good especially if australia has sam kerr back in action i mean she is um touted as the best player in this entire tournament so would be a huge shame if we don't get to see her play but um i think if she's back in that lineup for australia then that is going to be a really tough challenge for canada
0: when you're looking at the favorites of this tournament, do you think the United States still hold that um, that opportunity to to do something really special here and win another World Cup? Are they the favorites in your eyes?
4: I think so. I think they're the legitimate favorites for sure. Um, I think much like Canada, it's crucial that they finish first in their group. Um, otherwise, it's it's not quite as much of a sure thing for them. But at the end of the day, you know this American team, even with um, you know, missing Mallory Swanson due to injury. I mean, she is sort of their top goal scorer at the moment and who they really look to to provide um, goals. But at the end of the day, the U.S. just continues to turn out more and more superstars. And there's always a set of a new crop of players waiting in the wings. And I think we're going to see a lot of um, exciting new players. Sophia Smith, for example, you know, I, I expect to see big things from her. So it's, you know, it's just yes it's they're legitimately number 1 there's a chance that they could repeat which would be unbelievable mm-hmm. um so it's 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 hard to it's hard to argue with with the fact that they're just <laughs> you know they are it's hard to admit, team. too, isn't yeah, it? It's
1: a little it's hard, hard to admit, too.
0: Well, they're building kind of a dynasty over there, um, but we'll, we'll take yeah. it one game at a time with the Canadians. We appreciate you jumping on. It's great to get the chance to chat with you. And uh, it's a you long too. tournament, so hopefully we get you on one more time, all right? Yes, I'd love to. Awesome. Well, thanks Morning, so much take care. You. We'll chat We're soon. Sure. Bye. It's Carl Link, oh, okay. former Canadian national soccer team player.
1: Yeah, we got to get Jesse Fleming on the pitch. I think that's pretty obvious. Of yes. course, uh, a lot of the best players on Canada belong to Chelsea. Their teammates, Jesse Fleming, Ashley Lawrence, uh, Kadisha Buchanan, we didn't talk mm. about. Uh, it'd be important to get uh, one uh, you know, a player who obviously plays a big role for a big club, but one that plays a big, big role for Canada. It was definitely uh, felt last night, not having Jesse Fleming in the middle of the pitch. And of course, taking that penalty, as much as you felt like it was in capable hands with Christine Sinclair, uh, as Kara mentioned, which is, you know, strange, like the most goals ever. And yet you'd still mm-hmm. want Jesse Fleming in that spot. That's how much she means or th- that's what she means to this Canadian team.
0: Canada back in action next Wednesday, the 26th at 8 a.m. against Ireland. And then they wrap up uh, this part of the tournament and hopefully not the full tournament uh, on the 31st at 6 a.m. versus host Australia. That'll be a big one. Um, we asked before the break to text in five ninety five ninety 590, 590 uh, some of your most weirdest places that you've seen a celebrity or a famous athlete because of the whole A-Rod connection. And uh, we got a couple here, actually. Um, met Eric Lindros years ago standing next to me at the Urinal. There you go. In Muskoka. Okay, in Muskoka. <laughs> yeah, well, they... They've st- Signed at Muskoka. So I assume it's either you're texting in from Muskoka or okay. it wasn't Muskoka. Um, pumped gas next to Don Cherry. Brian from Shelburne. Love the show. You guys sound different, but still great. It's the afternoon voice.
1: Different, but still great. We you know, spoken
0: more than 10 words before we started the show. <laughs> yeah. Um, might be the difference. Brian from Toronto says, I was having dinner, and as I often do at the original House of Chan restaurant, quiet Sunday night, all of a sudden with people I knew in walked Bon Jovi.
1: Mm. That's pretty cool. Do you have any celebrity encounters? you I can
0: share? I can't think of any.
1: I saw Mark Giordano at the mall earlier. You did. This year. You were at Sherway. Uh, uh, Sherway. 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 That Sherway. It
0: was Christmas time, and he, was he had a bag
1: gifts. that looked like it was worth more than the gifts that I was collecting combined <laughs> for my friends and family.
0: That probably makes sense. Yeah,
1: that that was a that was the thing that happened. I also saw Paul Bissonette. I was in Arizona, and he was just bombing around and like wow. the old like. Uh, old Scottsdale, Old Scottsdale, Scott. not not a saloon, but he was just like bomb. Like I saw him multiple times over the course of an afternoon, like he was doing the same thing we were doing, well, just like crossing pass over and over again. When
0: I was in I Nashville, alone, two though. two three weeks ago, whenever it was, um, obviously Biz was there doing some content and all over the place. And he, I've never seen somebody get bombarded so much by fans. He was walking from one bar to another, and the sidewalks were swarmed with people. Throwing their phones at him. Biz, can you chirp my buddy? And like putting the phone in his face. And he's like, I'm not going to chirp your buddy. Like, let me go to Tootsies. Like, move out of the way. He was very respectful. Like, I, I couldn't believe it. Like, I would probably get frustrated if I could not walk one foot without, you know, 18-year-old boys throwing cell phones at you to chirp their buddies. But just he,
1: a bunch of fellas. The,
0: <laughs> so many fellas today. The show is full <laughs> of fellas. Uh, but yeah, Biz was, uh, he was good. He just carried himself great. Um, uh, here's some more. Having breakfast at a restaurant in Pickering and Sean Avery was sitting with his parents and he was suspended from the NHL. Oh, that's Spencer and Whippy. Okay. Ooh, just getting a little brekkie. Maybe a little chorus. Robbie. Are the chorus in Pickering? Uh, probably. Robbie from Cayuga. Sure. The group I was traveling with and performing, Electrical Jumpers, were in L.A. for a Lakers halftime performance. This is really cool. I walked into our change room and found Kobe Bryant asleep on the floor. Everyone was caught off guard, and Kobe just got up and said, "Sorry." He was getting ready to win in a quiet space. Just got up and walked out.
1: Wow! Surprised he didn't just stay where he was.
0: Well, I mean, the electrical jumpers are coming in to plug some stuff in and get <laughs> yeah. cooking. Start slamming the guitar.
1: <laughs> they got to plug in their they got to plug in their instruments, I guess. get yeah. going.
0: Uh, big game tonight for the Toronto Argos. Our Argos. Mm-hmm. What's the line?
1: we we'll check it out quickly. Tie cats, of course. Battle of the QEW, an important one.
0: Argo's undefeated. I'm all just Argo's all the way. Yeah, the Argo's got it, Argo's got yeah. to be The big one though.
1: I, I be I, I just I don't even know what the number is, but I want to lay the points with the Argos because I'm this look is it Ar- up for you. This is an Argo show. I guess the Fan Morning Show is an Argo show. This Fan Drive Time is an Argo show yeah, as well. Yeah, get our
0: buddy uh, Chad Kelly on.
1: Of course. We're going to we're going to try and get him we're monthly. We're
0: swagster. Chat with him next week. You got a line for us, yeah? It's slow. The internet is slow because everyone's we're all checking. using it here, we're all checking up what the fellows are up to here okay. uh okay, nine and a half point favorites mm.
1: Mm. I still like it mm. so play at it
0: there're no show uh, bet there no Edmonton
1: oof well, Hamil- Hamilton is not yes, Hamilton's not very good either though, so um, uh, i'm I'm willing to lay the points with the Argos tonight,
0: okay, well, we've got the Blue Jays in action too, so they're on their west coast whip around uh that's a ten ten p m start time. They are dogs against the Mariners, and they're home away from home ballpark. Uh, they are dogs, plus 104 on the money line against the Mariners. So um, and I like the, Kikuchi on the mound. Yeah, Bryce you Miller. Say,
1: you say Kikuchi making his return. It's good pitching from the Seattle Mariners this weekend. A bunch of guys with ERAs in the threes, at least to start. Logan Gilbert will be uh, facing off against Kevin Gosman on Saturday, and it'll be Brian Wu and Alec Manoa on Sunday. So, I mean, we, didn't, we haven't really talked much about the Padres series on mm. this show, uh, at least today. Um, clearly Chris Bassett stepped up in a major way for Mm them. Uh, but it came down to (laughs) Alec Manoa was kind of the difference because we had really good pitching matchups with Barrios and Bassett throwing really, really well for the Blue Jays over the back half of the series. Uh, and there was two pitching duels. The Blue Jays won one Padres won the other. And then Alec Manoa in the first game, uh, wasn't really competitive at all. In fact, he was non-competitive and that's the reason why they lost the series. So they've got to get another Great pitching performance, maybe from Yusei Kikuchi. We can probably expect the same thing, hopefully, from Kevin Gosman. Maybe they split, and then we get a chance to have Alec Manoa with the series on the line again. Ooh. What are we going to get from Alec Manoa in this spot? So, you know, we're working towards it. We're 10, 11 days from the trade deadline. we got to start making the decisions. we got Ryu and Manoa starts to look at this weekend. We're getting more data in. We're trying to figure out exactly what it is here. But they're going to keep running into the same thing over and over again. Every fifth day, they they can't win the ball game. It's going to be really, really frustrating over the balance of the season. So another big spot here for Alec Manoa, but important, obviously, to make up some ground in these first games. And Blue Jays will have to get, you know, their their bats going because uh, the the Mariners pitching is going to be formidable.
0: Well, we do know that Hyunjin Ryu will be making, uh, I believe, a start tonight at AAA. Um, so slated for about 80, 85 pitches. That'll be his final tune-up if he is sharp. So if he does pitch well tonight, looking good, he might be back in the rotation sometime soon. A little competitiveness between him and Alec Manoa, maybe for that spot. There we'll you go. find out. Yes, yeah, so 100 Ryu out at AAA tonight.
1: I am laying the points. By the way, with the Argos third-string quarterback. Oh, let's go under center for the Hamilton I Tiger love Cats. It. So Argos stay hot, stay undefeated, cash some more bets. We love to hear it. Swag Kelly will commiserate or not commiserate, will celebrate on the radio with him. Hopefully, <laughs> as soon as possible because we love having Chad Kelly on the show. But yeah, big one tonight. Argos in action. Blue Jays in action. Women's World Cup continues. Open Championship. Maybe Brian Harmon will come back to the field yeah, for us. We cross shall your fingers see. But and- a good sports weekend nonetheless.
0: Well, we appreciated the uh, time to be a little afternoon show for you guys for the last two weeks. Um, we'll be back on the morning, so check out the Fan Morning Show on Monday at 6 a.m. Justin and I will be there, and we'll chat with you then.